squire nagged and bullied till I went to fight under Lord Darby's scheme. I died in hell. They called it Passchendaele. My wound was slight and I was hobbling back and then a shell burst slick upon the duckboards. So I fell into the bottomless mud and lost the light. At sermon time, while Squire is in his pew, he gives my gilded name a thoughtful stare. For though low down upon the list, I'm there. In proud and glorious memory, that's my due. Two bleeding years I fought in France for Squire. I suffered anguish that he's never guessed. Oh, once I came home on leave and then went west. What greater glory could a man desire? Hello, everyone, and welcome to What About the Canadians, a podcast about Canadian history. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we'll examine the battles the Canadians served in. All right, welcome back, everyone. We are on episode three on the Battle of Passchendaele. And you just heard a poem written by Siegfried Sassoon, or Sassoon, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, I apologize, but um, it sort of gives a good descriptor of what the men on the battlefield would have gone through at the time. And I don't know about you, Shauna, but the words that keep repeating themselves when it comes to Passchendaele is mud, water, and hell. Yeah, that sounds about accurate, I think. Yeah. So I don't know if we'll really be able to capture that, but I thought maybe at least that poem would give give everyone a good idea. But um, we have a lot to go through today, so we might as well get started. We're going to jump back in to, uh, we're about mid-August. We're now at the Battle of Langemark, which, which commenced on August the 16th. So, while the Canadians were pushing their way up to Hill 70, so we went through that in episode, I guess, two of the Battle of Passchendaele. So if you haven't listened, go back and listen. Um, we have our Newfoundland Regiment, which is the same regiment that served oh so valiantly at the harrowing Battle of Beaumont Hamel. And they were fighting alongside the British uh, 14th Corps, 29th Division at Langemark. So just north of St. Julien along the Galvaux Plateau, extending from Polygon Wood to the Ypres Roulier Railway, the men were sent over the top at 4.45 a.m. on August the 16th, 1917. I feel bad for these guys because there's no way I'm getting up at 4.45. I don't think that they were going to sleep very much, though. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, excuse us, sir, can we have an, a later start so we can sleep in? Can I have a later checkout? Yeah. <laughs> so knee-deep in mud, the men of the 11th and 48th Divisions on the south end of the line advanced a few yards, if they were lucky. 
Now, if the German pillboxes and blockhouses were not enough to stop the advance, the mud certainly was. On the north end, over 1,500 yards were successfully taken, advancing the men to Broenbeek? Bro, sure. Uh, Broenbeek stream, but sadly, the regiment suffered 103 cas uh, casualties. So I could get into sort of a very long and drawn out explanation of the attacks between the 18th and 25th of August, but quite honestly, I don't think it really adds a lot to our story because the events are kind of predictable in a way. So long story short, like Haig orders the 5th Army to further its advance along the Gellivelt Plateau. Goss sends in some tanks. That The tanks get stuck in some mud. Uh, it's followed by the infantry that then has some success, but then they get pushed back out. And unfortunately, a lot of men die. So overall, there were three attempts to gain a stronghold along the Gellivelt Plateau, and it really wasn't all that successful. So in the end, Haig made a plan to pull out the 5th Army and replace them with the 2nd Army, which was under the command of Plumer. So during the month of August, there were over 68,000 casualties. But I mean, that's a staggering number, but not all was lost. Um, the battle did prove effective in drawing the Germans away from the French and Russian battlefronts at the time. And we know that's critical because we know that the French went through a huge like revolt at the beginning of 1917. They're just not as cohesive or strong as they used to be. So providing a deterrent was important at the time. And of course, can't forget good old Russia going through revolution. So <laughs> the British are kind of handling things. Uh, a book on their own right now. So that brings us to the Battle of Menin Road Ridge. There was well, there was kind of a gap in between. Um, so Ashley kind of ended in mid August or end of August there, and the weather was really bad. There was a, it was a very rainy August, so they took a little break. They camped out. They you know had some volleys back and forth, but there wasn't anything big. Um, but the Battle of Menin Road Ridge was the restart of the offensive at Passchendaele. There were a few weeks or more of bad weather, like I said, in August, um, but in mid-September, the weather really started to clear up and things were drying out a little bit, so the push was back on at the German positions on the high ground of the Gellivelt Plateau by Ypres Menin Road. The drier weather allowed for more artillery to be brought into the area and create an attack plan that was centered around that heavy artillery, which we know in the past has worked very well. So General Herbert Plumer, who was the commander of the Second Army at this point, was given the job of coordinating the attack with his British, Australian, and New Zealand units and the help of a few Canadian support companies, but they didn't play a huge part here. He devised a plan that had the objectives within 1,500 yards of the Allied trenches, and that was well within range of the British artillery. This was to ensure that when the German counterattacks came, they wouldn't just be running through minimal amount of British troops that were now poorly supplied, but they would also be coming into heavy artillery to push them back. He also reorganized the reinforcements to ensure that there would be enough infantry to fend off that counterattack. 
So on September 20th, they started the artillery heavy attack that had one gun for every five yards of ground. So there was a lot that they had brought up there. Uh, Plumer's plan was called a bite and hold plan. This meant that the Allied soldiers attacked under the cover of heavy artillery bombardment, took a bite out of a section of German defenses, and then quickly prepared the new line to hold it against the counterattack, which they were fully expecting. So the front was about 15 kilometers long, and some of the fighting was centered in an area known as Tower Hamlets, just west of the Gelevolt village. The whole front was marked by pillboxes and other concrete buildings, but this area was a real stronghold for the Germans, and by nightfall it was still in German control. So the next few days were, you know, they had small pockets of fighting everywhere, uh, and that was until September 25th, but it was really mostly a success in terms of objectives captured, but they did record 20,255 casualties with 8,000 dead. So it was pretty wow. heavy on the Australians, on the Anzacs is what they called them, the Australians and New Zealanders. That's a crazy number. And a 15-kilometer, yeah. like, front? Yeah. That's huge. It was really long, but it wasn't too deep. Because they really just wanted to, like, bite and hold. Like, just make that and keep it within the artillery line. But, I mean, depends on what you define as success. Like, huge yeah. casualties. But they did get some some territory. Yeah, that's true. Um, that seemed, that may be the question of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, so we're going to jump into the battle of Polygon Wood. So with the success achieved at the battle of Menon Road, Haig ordered Plumer to advance an additional 1200 yards across the Gelevelt Plateau. So on the north end of the line stood the 5th Army, and their objective was to take the Zonnebeck, Kansas Road. Now, in the center was the 1st Anzac Corps, and they were tasked with carrying out the main attack on Polygon Wood and Zonnebeck Village. And finally, on the right, we have the 10th Corps. To be honest, I'm not sure what army they were in. I didn't find that information, but they're part of the 10th Corps. Um, and they were to occupy the area along the Menon Road. So as preparations were kind of underway, the German army launched an attack on the morning of the 25th between Polygon Wood and Menon Road. Now, Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, who was the commander of the German 6th Army, he feared that the British were close to capturing the plateau and he wanted time to bring up reserves, so he ordered the, the counterattack, essentially. Now, between two and 600 yards were lost by the British on the left and right flanks, but the main center position was held by the Anzacs. So luckily, that kind of meant that our planned offensive could go ahead without delay on the morning of the 26th of September. So I don't think it really bought the time the Germans were hoping for. So like Shauna said, like September was starting to dry up. It wasn't quite as swampy as what the soldiers were used to seeing. Um, In fact, it was kind of the opposite. Like no man's land was so dry that the artillery barrage created this big wall of dust. 
And this just obscured the view of the Germans. So with that added protective cover, the Anzacs largely succeeded in taking their objectives, taking important strong points, including um, an observation station that was on the Butte and Polygon Wood. But unfortunately, the right flank uh, was continuing to struggle. So prior to zero hour, um, the Germans did begin to heavily shell the area occupied by what was the 98th Brigade. And in this sort of time of chaos, one battalion had gotten lost even before reaching the assembly point. And these like setbacks caused delays, making it completely impractical for the 98th Brigade of the 33rd Division to move into no man's land at zero hour. Now, because of this, the men were a thousand yards short of their objective. So kind of unusually in a way, like the, the brass were actually quick to react to the setback. Um, they moved in another battalion to help recover the lost territory and they were successful in achieving that. So now if we were to move down to the South Amenin Road, the 39th Division was held up by a quadrilateral the good old quadrilateral. <laughs> what episode was that? Uh, I think that was like... Festerbear? The second battle of Ypres, wasn't it? I don't remember. I don't know. But anyway, a quadrilateral is basically just like this huge rectangle of trenches that you kind of have to get by on all four sides. It doesn't sound like a, a fun day to me. Um, but anyway, uh, so they had to... They were held up by this quadrilateral, and they did capture the section, like the sector. Um, but the the Germans took their machine gun and fired upon the men at close range, so uh, they didn't hold it for long. I guess is what I'll say. Um, and then uh, flying overhead, the Royal Air Corps could see Germans moving to their forward lines in preparation for the counterattack at Brudenside and the Brudenside. Passchendaele Ridge. Did I say that right, Shauna? Um, it's probably closer than I'll get. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> so they could see the counterattack coming. This information was communicated to the artillery, and the artillery began bombing the German lines, which was so effective that the counterattack failed to materialize on most fronts, forcing the Germans to call off the attack. Now, early the next morning, the 98th Brigade did capture their objective and not a single yard of territory lost by the Germans was ever regained in that sector. Oh, that's some good news. Yeah, I'm impressed. We've got the brass making a quick call to move in some extra guys. We've got great communications between the air and land and the artillery is effectively hitting their targets like... It's all coming together. It it's is. all happening. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the Battle of Broodsind. And uh, that one. <laughs> I, was gonna say, I, th- I think that's a better pronunciation. <laughs> I don't know. I did look it up, but I can't do a very good accent, so I'm not even attempting that. <laughs> it's okay. So close enough. Um, this one was planned by Herbert Plumer. Um, but I, I was looking at, it was, um, a New Zealand website and they said that his nickname was 
Herbert Daddy Plumer. <laughs> they didn't say why. I never saw that on any other research bit. I don't know. But his nickname was Daddy. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Do you watch um, Good Mythical Morning? No, I've never heard of that one. Oh, they're like these guys on, on YouTube. And there was this... You won't get it then because there was this character called like Cotton Candy or Cotton Candy Randy. And he'd be like, hey, daddies. And when I saw that written on your thing, I just could hear his voice. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> anyway. Well, I'll have to check it out then. We'll give him a shout out too. <laughs> uh, so the battle started on October 4th, 1917 as a way to capitalize on the successes of Polygon Wood and capture German positions on the brood-signed ridge and the ruined villages of Zonnebeck, Gravenstoffel, and Polkpel. See, we're getting good at those names because we've said them a few times before. Yes. They just roll off the tongue now. It's easy. <laughs> we'll find out we've been saying them totally wrong this whole time. Somebody oh, 100%. Come, in, come at us and let us know that. <laughs> Uh, this attack was a large-scale large attack that included 12 British, Australian, and New Zealand divisions, and they attacked at 6 a.m. behind a creeping barrage, which worked better than planned when it caught the German soldiers out in the open as they prepared for their own attack. So they were already starting to creep across no man's land, and their the Allied creeping barrage came rolling in. Um, the downside was that a fair amount of Germans were hiding in shell holes that were missed by the barrage, and after it lifted, they crawled out for some intense hand-to-hand combat. Bayonets, or not bayonets, yeah, bayonets fixed and, yeah. and right in there with each other, and it was kind of a big surprise. Um, although there were pretty high casual- casualties, and it seems like there always are, the Australians and New Zealand units successfully took all of their objectives including the ruins of Zonnebeck and much of the Brunsigned Ridge. All right, so we're moving along. We're petering yeah, along. it's rolling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that brings us to the Battle of Polkapel on October the 9th. So six German divisions had to be relieved after what the German general Ludendorff called wastage in the big action in Flanders. Um, And at this time, the Allies really had every reason to believe that victory on the plateau could be achieved as the demoralized Germans began to retreat. But their stroke of luck with the dry weather had sadly come to an end on October the 4th. Now, the rain began as a drizzle and turned it to a monsoon by the 7th. Now, army commanders kind of did the whole... You know, we could go into battle, but if you didn't want to go into battle, we totally understand. (laughs) That's like when you have to go on a date or you have to go meet a friend or something. And you're like, well, I don't really want to. Yeah. I could do it. I guess. And then they cancel (laughs) and then you're like so excited. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) But... You know, the person that they were, like, asking was Haig. So how do you think that went? Oh, he got on his horse, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) He was not willing to walk away 
It's the cavalry's turn. (laughs) You know what? I didn't read anything about the cavalry in this. this. (laughs) No, I didn't either. So maybe he let that go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For Hag taking the Passchendaele Westerosbeck. Westerosbeck, sure. Sector of the ridge that overlooks Steenbeck Valley um, was critical. Um, he was still under pressure to keep the front at Flanders active to help keep German troops away from the French front. Um, I already talked about how they had the revolts and all that good stuff. But I guess I should mention, like, from the revolt, like, men were now granted, like, a 10-day leave every four months. So what that meant is that there was about 340,000 men taken off the line every month. So that was like about a quarter of their numbers. So that's pretty huge. That's huge. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's kind of why maybe Haig felt a bit of pressure. Um, I also will mention, too, that word had also been circulating that the Germans were preparing to launch uh, renewed attacks not only on Russia, but on Italy as well. Um, So... He just wanted to keep as many troops in the Flanders area as long as possible. That was kind of his main objective at the time. Okay, so in the field, the engineers ensured that communications to the front were in working order despite the porridge of mud that had taken over the front lines. The plank roads needed to move the heavy guns were sinking. What used to take an hour to move ammunition up to the front now took up to 16 hours. And the horses moving ammunition often slipped into the mud, never to be seen again. Now, Gunner Jack Dillon recalled that, and this is a quote, the mud was a curious kind of sucking kind of mud. It drew you in, not like quicksand, but a real monster that sucked at you. Oh, I would, I would, do you know that scene in Neverending Story? Oh, gosh, Artex? Uh, like, it made me cry all the time. I can't imagine seeing that in real life. Yeah, I mean, all the pictures that you see and the stories, it's all about, like, the mud swallowing horses whole. Yeah. Wasn't there, I don't remember, I never got a chance to rewatch Passchendaele, but was there like scenes like that in there? No, actually, I don't think that, I I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, but I have watched it in the last couple months. And that was one thing that I don't remember them really making a big deal out of. Like they had the battle scene in the town, but I don't remember the mud so much. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. We don't need any traumatizing scenes. No, I don't this. need to see that. <laughs> I was just curious. Okay. Um, so moving on. So before long, the dugouts and the gun flat platforms began to flood, leaving the men to sleep in blankets stretched in icy water. But many resorted to covering themselves in straw. I guess that's warmer. Maybe. Maybe it didn't suck up the water as much. Maybe. I'd assume blankets would just suck it right up. Yeah. So modern medicine has sort of debunked this myth that's propagated by mothers everywhere that you'll catch a cold if you don't wear your hat. 
But I think the men in the artillery might have a strong argument as to why you should listen to your mother. Uh, (laughs) They were caked in freezing mud and working doubly hard to fight the conditions. And they were both just physically and mentally worn down. So basically I read is like everyone was just getting sick all the time, which is... I could imagine that. Expected. Mm-hmm. So come zero hour on October the 9th, the artillery barrage was unfortunately disjointed with shells either missing their targets or sinking in the mud upon impact. The sparsely formed infantrymen moved forward with unease. Many of the battalions from the 2nd Anzac Corps didn't even make it to the front. I mean, why? Because they're waist deep in water. <laughs> like, like, how are they going to get up there? Uh, so all along the front, the Germans hid within shell holes like they did in the last battle Shauna talked about. Um, and they were would pop up at the most opportune moment to shoot against the advancing allies. Now, time and time again, the Anzacs were pushed back to the starting line. Now, some success was made alongside the uh, Holthulst, Holthulst? Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, forest, but in general, gains were limited and casualties were high. There were over 7,000 men that had either died, been injured, or gone missing. So that toll is just adding up quickly. Now, on October the 9th, Haig also made a decision to assign the Canadian Corps to the front, but the question arose as to whether they should join the Second Army under the command of Plumer or the Fifth under the command of Goff. Now, apparently Haig was advised to assign the Canadians to Plumer as, quote, the Canadians do not work kindly with Goff. And if you want to know why, go listen to the Battle of the Somme. (laughs) (laughs) It'll explain everything. (laughs) Now, Curry was also ordered to submit plans for the capture of Passchendaele as soon as possible. Um, It kind of, the way I kind of read it, it was like, oh, glorious Curry, you're our last hope. Submit your plans to us. Like, I'm probably, (laughs) I'm probably reading into that. Maybe because I think... Probably not wrong. (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? Um, I mean, at the time, Curry was like, kind of was looking at this whole battle as like just beating a dead horse. But... Literally? Like, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) 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 Nope. No pun intended. Uh, Or was a pun intended. Go with it. Just roll. Yeah, that was totally intended. Whatever. Um, But Curry knew that a line had to be established on the Passchendaele-Westerusbecki Ridge (laughs) for the winter, and the Germans needed to be kept occupied because the plans were already underway for the Battle of Cambrai. (laughs) (laughs) So finally we're going to get to a battle... That's called Passchendaele, but it's this whole thing has been called Passchendaele. So I know I don't know why this one is called the first battle of Passchendaele, but that's that's what it is. So (laughs) this battle, again, was mainly up to the Anzac Corps. They were to begin the slog across no man's land the morning of October 12th 
with the support from their heavy artillery in an attempt to take the Passchendaele Ridge. That's why it's this one's Passchendaele, because they're finally going to that actual ridge. ridge. Right. The whole area is kind of Passchendaele, but this is actually on the ridge. It was probably like, like, like past thinking where it was called the Battle of Passchendaele. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Um, But for this battle, the rain fell through the night and the New Zealand line was bombarded by German artillery as they were about to go over the top at 5 a.m. So it did not start well. The 4th Australian Division went over the top on time, but had very little support, and everyone was slowed down by the mud, and the heavy guns were starting to sink. Um, With every round fired, it just kind of pounded them deeper into the ground. So between the mud and the German artillery and the well-defended pillboxes, the advance was nearly impossible, especially for the New Zealanders, who mark October 12th as New Zealand's blackest day. Yeah, it was not good for them. They were pinned down in muddy, flooded shell holes that often swallowed men as they attempted to seek any cover from the German machine guns. Their initial 5 a.m. push was a complete failure, and the supporting 3 p.m. push was completely canceled. Um, Those that could fell back almost to their starting positions, but those that couldn't were left there to sink. 843 New Zealand soldiers died at Passchendaele during and after that battle, and the Australians didn't fare much better with over 3,000 casualties and little to no ground gained. Yikes. All right, so the Canadians were now on the front lines between Gravenstoffel Ridge and Passchendaele, which was very closely located to where they held the lines during the Second Battle of Ypres, except the battlefield was in unimaginably worse condition than they had left it. Curry even noted, The battlefield looks bad. No salvaging has been done, and very few of the dead are buried. So by the 20th of October, the plan to launch an attack on the coast of Belgium had been called off. Um, So if you remember, like the original plan was to sort of have this like, dual land slash like amphibious attack. They were kind of going to fan into each other and take over the port. That's gone. Like it's off the shelf. It's not, it's not going to happen. The new focus was just solely Passchendaele. So to draw German soldiers away from the Canadian front while battle plans were being laid for the big attack on Passchendaele, um, there was sort of like a mini attack launched on the 22nd, again, near this whole third, Holthol Holth Holth Holthost. Holthost It's near the forest. <laughs> so long story short, everything remains status quo. Good report, no. Ash. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So the next day, on October 23rd, uh, the Battle of Malmaison, it was a French assault. That is kind of interesting for a few reasons. Um, This is where we can kind of see the tide turning for the French. Uh, It was a little set piece battle rather than a large scale offensive that took advantage of heavy artillery that they had available. The Germans were outgunned three to one and their heavy guns were taken out by French aerial reconnaissance. 
In addition, the French really adopted the use of tanks here. Even despite the deteriorating weather conditions, they still made really good use of the tanks. Um, they sent 63 tanks into battle. Uh, unfortunately, 27 never made it past the front lines, and 15 were lost in no man's land. But 21 of them made it to the second German line, and over days uh, uh, over the days of this battle, the French succeeded in taking Chemin de Dames Ridge, the Malmaison village, and the fort, and they advanced 10 kilometers. So it was a huge morale booster. And while it was the last offensive for France in 1917, they they took this one on a high note. They felt good about it. 10 kilometers, I would be feeling great. <laughs> yeah, like people are celebrating with a couple hundred yards and they took a lot of territory. That's awesome. It is so crazy to me. I do not associate tanks with World War I at all but like this tank warfare thing is just exploded yeah it was really in its in its infancy but they used it and they kept developing that technology they ran with it yeah that's interesting that's one thing i did not know about world war (laughs) one if it's one thing you didn't know if it's one thing that you learned during this whole season It's just that. No, I've learned multiple things. (laughs) That that one was like the most surprising to me. It is. It's a big one. It made a big difference. All right. So we are now moving forward to the second Battle of Passchendaele. Now, things were bad, really bad. Brigadier General Morrison informed Curry that only half of the 18-pounders and half of the heavies that were taken over from the Anzacs were in service. The planks and even the railway lines that were needed to move the 6-inch howitzers and the 60-pounders close to the front were sinking. Now, without the full strength of the artillery, the infantry was left vulnerable to attack. Now, by this time, gas warfare had become more sophisticated. The Germans were launching what was referred to as Yellow Cross and Blue Cross gas. Now, the blue gas was a type of sneezing gas, and this would cause the soldier um, to have to take off his mask because he was sneezing or, worst case scenario, he was vomiting. But by doing so, he would then expose himself to a more harmful yellow gas which then would inflict the, the, the either serious or fatal injury. So in the face of impossibility, we know that Curry is not the type of man to become overwhelmed. He sent several tunning, tunneling field pioneer and infantry companies through the lines to repair the roads and battery platforms. Now the out-of-service guns were sent to the rear for repair as well. Now, luckily for Curry, the 5th Division uh, had arrived in France in September of 1917. And this is the Canadian 5th Division. And with them brought an additional 350 field and heavy guns to which Curry could kind of like borrow some of them for the attack on Passchendaele. So things were starting to turn around. Now, of course, we know that Curry is calculated. He thought the battle plans through and through until he was certain his objectives could be achieved. Now, Curry prepared the men for battle by distributing his plans to the units 
and ensuring each of his men were well-versed with their objectives. Now, Curry wrote in a report that, I am convinced that our reconnaissance and close liaison between the artillery, the infantry units, and the staff is vital to the success of any operation. And of course, we know that. We saw that at the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Now, by this time, the Germans had changed their tactics, like, again. So, if you remember, we discussed how the Germans um, kind of withdrew a lot of their men from the front lines to lower their casualty rate during, like, an initial bombardment period. But unfortunately, this wasn't, well, I say unfortunately, unfortunately for them, this wasn't really working anymore because the British had developed effective counter strategies. So instead of attacking uh, an objective in one fell swoop, advances were made in stages. And this is kind of like that bite and hold tactic you were talking about, Shauna. Uh, and this would allow for reserve troops to come forward and move towards their next objective. Now, as for the artillery, um, they focused their fire on the second German, or sorry, the second and third German lines, and this prevented the strength of the German forces from moving to the front line on time. So essentially, the Germans, they decided to bring their troops back to the front line, move their forward reserves closer, um, but kind of keep them on hold for the inevitable counterattacks they were going to face and then move their machine gun nests closer to the front. Now, the German commanders were like livid because this plan basically meant that the strength of their army and their most effective weapons would be in the forward zone, and this would make them the perfect little target for the British artillery. Um, and this is one of the reasons that broodside... Brood... <laughs> Broodside was such a disaster for them. <laughs> so by the time we get kind of get to October, General Ludendorff, he switched things up a little bit. Now on the front, like on the front line of craters, um, he would put a few guns and machine guns, but he moved the main line back by about 500 to 1,000 meters. And this would give the artillery the ability to kind of move maneuver back and forth, like pending on how the attack was shaping up. Um, and then another effective strategy um, that the Germans used, of course, and we've talked about this multiple times, is the pillboxes. And those are those big concrete huts that protected soldiers. Um, unless you were directly hit by shell fire, then, you know, the pillbox would be destroyed. But all in all, they were pretty effective, like especially against like shrapnel. And you know whatnot. what, though, I, yeah, I was reading that a lot of the shells, unless they used the heaviest ones, would just basically bounce off of them because the concrete was so thick. Yeah, like, I think I read they were, like, five feet thick. Yeah, something like that. It's ridiculous. It's like, what were we doing when we were watching them make these things? What was happening? Well, I don't... The Germans took that territory pretty early in the war, so they, I mean, they had a long time to do it. For sure. But we would have been holding the line as well. But may, there must have been priorities elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I, they, I'm, I don't think that they were just like, you know, 
watching and waiting for them for the concrete to dry. Well, they actually probably were. <laughs> <laughs> to some extent, but like, I mean, they they were fighting elsewhere as well. Yeah, yeah. The the thinly held line watched them as the concrete yeah. <laughs> dried. <laughs> Saying, shouldn't shouldn't we do something about this? Should somebody tell somebody? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Let's just play cards. Uh, anyway, so um, Curry's plan is a familiar one. Essentially, he wanted the artillery to launch an initial bombardment on the German lines to destroy as many guns, men, and wire as possible. Then at zero hour, the infantry would go over the top, protected by a barrage of shells. Now, behind the infantry would then follow the heavy guns to fire on the German guns that would inevitably come into operation once the initial bombardment stopped. And then bada bing, bada boom, you got your victory. Yeah. Is that how? Yeah. Easy, right? (laughs) (laughs) So how did it actually go down? On the north end of the line, brigades from the 3rd Division would advance 1,200 yards up the slopes of Bellevue Spur and pass several pillboxes to the red line. Now, on the southern end, brigades from the 4th Division would head 600 yards to decline cops around the Ypres-Rouillet Railway. Now, since there was no communication trenches and most places were knee-deep in water, the attacking troops were moved to the front like four days in advance. I should also mention it's raining again. (laughs) <laughs> like it's not it's not dry anymore um, so unfortunately a lot of these men spend a couple of days in shell holes with nothing but like ground sheets to cover to like cover them like this kind of remind me of bastone but instead of snow and cold it was like mud rain and cold if that you watch band horrible. of brothers oh really who hasn't watched band of brothers I don't know. Insane insane people, Shauna. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of what this reminded me of. Now, the the initial bombardment itself was also commenced four days in advance to keep the Germans from guessing as to when the attack would be launched. Now, Zero Hour was officially at 5.40 a.m. on the morning of October the 26th, 1917, And as the men went over the top, they advanced 50 yards every four minutes behind that rolling barrage, which seems very slow to me compared to Vimy. Well, but Vimy didn't have the mud. Yes. They had to slog through that getting stuck. It would take them so much longer. For sure. I think it just was like, yeah, this is going to take a while. Like, Yeah, they accounted for that. Yeah. Now, the 4th Division on the southern end of the line captured its main objectives, but the 3rd didn't fare quite as well as sort of the 1st Brigades were pushed back to the starting line, um, with exception of some a couple of pillboxes they captured on Bellevue Spur. Um, they actually had to make a second attempt around noon that same day, but they were finally able to capture the line um the line that actually the Anzacs had struggled to capture in the first battle of Passchendaele. So by 620 the next morning, so almost like 48 or 24 hours later, 
Um, they were just 300 yards short of the red line. So um, there appears to kind of maybe have been at least one flaw in Curry's plan. And truthfully, when I read this and I was like, was that a flaw? I don't know. But um, I guess the Canadian Force Division and the 1st Australian Divisions have been given the objective um, to take um, Lamkeek de Decline Cops. Um, and in this book I read by um, Colonel Nicholson, which is the it's called the Canadian Expeditionary Force. He stated that like only one group should have taken the objective, but he didn't really say why other than that both the divisions had to withdraw upon the German counterattack. But then they went on to take it the following night. So I'm not really sure what the plan was, but I guess what I'm just trying to say, there was a bit of a hiccup there. They took it. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, the battle wasn't like 100% successful, but it was kind of like successful enough. Um, it at least put the Canadians on higher ground, but unfortunately there were over 2,400 casualties. That's a lot still. Yes. Yeah, to get that many men off the line. So then we move on to the October 30th offensive. Uh, the Canadians only had to cross six to 800 meters of ground, but that was basically all fortified farm buildings, houses, and pillboxes, um, and from higher ground than the Canadian line. So through all these fortified places, they could look down and see what the Canadians were doing. The, fa uh, the far farms were called First, Source, and Vapor, uh, and there was along with Duck Lodge, and that was on the far right of the 3rd Division's objectives. And the 4th Division had to capture Crest Farm. This front was really heavily fortified and the ground was really dry, finally, uh, for the Germans, which meant that their guns were going to be in better working order. This was part of a larger British offensive to help out the British and the Anzacs in that area. And General Goff wanted Curry to push the attack back to October 29th, or I guess, yeah, back to October 29th. But he refused. He wasn't willing to risk more Canadian lives than necessary. And he felt that rushing his meticulous planning would definitely do that. So he was sticking to his guns on that one against Goff, because we've seen that go badly before. They spent the time in between the last phase and October 30th phase fortifying their trenches and setting up the gun pits with scavenged material from the battlefield, uh, even using bully beef tins to, to keep their guns from sinking and to shore it up a little bit. Wow. They Still had eating that bully beef. <laughs> <laughs> They've been eating it for three years now. Oh, God. Go on. <laughs> Bully beef and hardtack. Woo, what a diet. They had their engineers out in the front of the lines digging drainage trenches and runoffs so that the mud would be slightly less horrible inside the trenches. But the problem was that these engineers were out there doing this under German fire. So it wasn't always great for them. They had to do their best to like jump in and out and and avoid. Um, so zero hour at this battle was 5.50 a.m. on the 30th, and they were supported by 420 guns, but the 85th Brigade on the far right of the 4th Division's position were forced out of their trenches early at 4 a.m. 
because they found out that the Germans were holding this area with machine gun posts jutting out into no man's land. So that would probably be missed by that initial barrage that they were sending over. So earlier than originally agreed upon, a bombardment lit up the forward nests of the Germans and the Canadians followed shortly after behind their creeping barrage. So unfortunately, it was an inadequate show of guns. And historian Tim Cook wrote it was possibly because the guns were sinking, but it left the German defenses mostly intact and totally ready to fire right back. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it was just one of those things at Passchendaele. I mean, the guns, they can't fire properly and hit the right targets if they are sinking. Well, and they're like, how many, like, tons? Yeah, you're not moving that once it's sinking, it's gone. Yeah. 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 Uh, They unleashed their intense machine gun fire and artillery against the Canadians that were in the process of crossing no man's land. They lost nine officers in the first few minutes, which meant that it was up to the lower ranks to take up the flag and lead the rest of the men. But luckily, that's part of Curry's planning. He makes sure that everybody knows everything. So yes, it sucks that they lost these men, but at least people knew where they were going still. Right. Uh, The 85th's only surviving senior officer was Major Anderson, and he called in for reinforcements. And the fresh men or as fresh as they could be, pulled up the rear and gave the Canadians the push that they needed. And by 6.38 a.m., they had reached their objective. The German counterattacks were staved off, and the 85th had definitely earned the motto on their badge. It's a Gaelic motto. I'm not going to say it in Gaelic, but it basically translates into breed of manly men. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good one. (laughs) The 72nd had the objective of taking Crest Farm, which was protected by a small lake. And at least 12 machine guns were at that farm and at least 12 more were spread out across the area. So it was pretty, pretty heavily fortified in there. It wasn't going to be easy. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Clark decided to take a chance and take his three companies through a small gap, which was only 50 meters wide, hoping to surprise the Germans. This really could have been a complete disaster. And we saw this in, I think it was the Battle of Elwha, when a company of men had to go over the top through a small communication trench and they just, the Germans saw that and just wiped them right out. They were shooting them as they were coming out. Um, But Clark was an experienced officer, and he knew he had to switch things up and come out on top. Thankfully, the 72nd was in the line of a perfect barrage. They also had the support of the Lewis and Vickers guns. These Highlanders stayed close to their creeping barrage and made it through the mud quicker than expected. One by one, the machine gun nests fell, and the guns were turned on any retreating Germans. The 72nd reached their objective by 9.30, and the Germans withdrew to their secondary line, but they still bombarded the Canadians for 18 hours with heavy artillery in retaliation. So that was a long counterattack. Of the attack, commander of the British Army, Mr. Douglas Haig, I guess it's Sir Douglas Haig, isn't it? Yes. 
<laughs> don't want to get that one wrong. <laughs> he said it was a feat of arms which would go down in the annals of British history as one of the greatest achievements of a single unit. Wow. Pretty high praise there. Yeah, no kidding. Also pretty risky, so yeah. Yeah, it, it was for sure. I'm glad but, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have much of a choice. He had to do something, so. I guess so. Why not? So um, by November the 5th, the 1st and 2nd Division had moved in to relieve the 3rd and 4th Divisions. Now, this this phase of the attack, they're moving on what they call the Green Line. And what Shauna was talking about, I don't think, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but that was kind of like their blue line, I think. Nope, sure didn't. <laughs> Skipped right <laughs> over that. <laughs> That's okay. So we've got colored lines happening again, but we're moving on towards the green line. And Curry wanted this to happen in two stages. First, the objective was to take the village of Passchendaele, and then it would be the crest of Passchendaele Ridge. So at 6 a.m., the bombardment was launched and the advancing troops, I think they must have been feeling pretty like good, like better than usual. Maybe they had downed a Red Bull before they went because they moved like so quickly across that battlefield that the Germans did not have time to make it to their machine guns. And the artillery, like the counter artillery fire, like was shooting like long, like way behind them. They were like, motoring passes like across this field (laughs) they just knew they wanted to get it over with and they were close maybe (laughs) um they were fresh they were ready to go i guess (laughs) um so the sixth brigade um was the first to enter passchendaele village but it didn't come without strife so held up by wire and a machine gunner uh James Peter Robertson had decided he was going to maneuver around this machine gun. I don't know if it was really a nest, but like a a machine gun guy. Um, And he was successful in killing their crew, which was about four men. So then he took that machine gun and turned it on the retreating Germans. So this allowed his platoon to carry on forward. Then a little a little later on in the day, two of his snipers were found injured in a trench. Um, so he decided to turn around and try to carry them out into safety. Um, but unfortunately, when he was going back for guy number two, he was hit by shrapnel. Um, and he and the second man unfortunately passed away. But he did win the Victoria Cross for that. Now, I mean, of course, there were pockets of heavy resistance throughout the line, but in the end, the Canadians took their objective. Um, Haig noted, um, quote, for the second time within the year, the Canadian troops achieved a record of uninterrupted success. Now, although considered a success, there were 200 and I can't talk. There were 2,238 casualties with 734 dead. Well, they are getting close here. Yes. So the final push to secure the ridge began on the morning of November 10th. The weakened Germans were pitted against the 1st and 2nd Divisions in a battle that ultimately ended really poorly for the Germans with over a thousand men being taken prisoner. By the end of the day, the Canadians had pushed the Germans off the ridge, 
but they had suffered over a, th- a thousand casualties and endured heavy shelling from the Germans all day and an assault from the German pilots who were able to curb the reconnaissance from the RAF and also fired mercilessly on the advancing Canadians in no man's land. But in the end, Haig could say that his offensive was a success. The ridge was in the hands of the Allies. But again, the question would be asked, was it worth it? Curry admitted it was a success and gave full credit to the soldiers, and ultimately it saved Haig's career and continued to slow the bloodletting that the Germans were putting up with. Almost unanimously, though, the men on the battlefield would say that it absolutely was not worth the horrors that they were forced to sink in every day. Tommy Adams of the 85th said that the battlefield was a complete nightmare of mud, slush, and everything else. It was frightful, and if I'd been in it for a week, I'm sure I'd have gone mad. But the men still did their jobs, and there were a lot of brave men at Passchendaele. Nine men won the Victoria Cross, uh, nine Canadian men. And while I couldn't find the number of the men who won either their military medal or a bar on their military medal, I did read about one man. His name was Francis Pegamagabo, who received the first bar on his military medal, And that was originally awarded in 1916, but then you get a little bar on top of it. I think you can get two or three bars. Pegamagabo was an Ojibwa from the Perry Island Band in Ontario. And he was in the 1st Battalion to go overseas and served as a scout and a sniper, which is actually kind of odd because, as we know, they weren't really accepting anybody but white men. So he was a bit of an anomaly. Uh, He was one of the few men that was there from the very beginning to the very end of the war. He was in the 1st Division, 1st Battalion at Passchendaele and served as a scout. His citation for earning his bar said at Passchendaele on November 6th and 7th, 1917, this NCO did excellent work. Before and after the attack, he kept in touch with the flanks, advising the units he had seen This information proving the success of the attack and saving valuable time in consolidating. He also guided the relief to its proper place after it had become mixed up. As a scout, Peg, as his fellow soldiers called him, baffled his superiors with his detailed reports. In some cases, it seemed like he had actually been in the enemy camps and trenches, so he must have been awfully good at his job. And for these missions, he generally preferred to work alone. Um, He did have a a really unfortunate incident with a buddy of his that he was doing a scouting mission with. And after that, he he didn't want to bring anybody else with him. His his buddy ended up dying. Um, And often the men weren't willing to work with him because he ventured into such dangerous territory. He attributed his invincibility to the protections he had from his fasts as a boy and the medicine that his traditional teachings afforded. Um, According to Brian McInnes, who wrote a a biography of him, he continued his traditional teachings and rituals as much as he could at the front, but found it difficult because the area felt old, but also forgotten, although not godless, even in the atmosphere of death and destruction. He attributed his injuries to momentary loss of faith because he was in such a catastrophic, dystopian environment. 
To regain or continue his faith, he regularly used tobacco in sacred ways and would always place tobacco on the earth before his missions and believed if he had not done that, the missions would have failed. And actually some of his superiors gave him tobacco and asked him to put it on the ground so so they would have success there. Um, he was at the Somme, uh, one of the worst battlefields of World War I, and he was also at Vimy. Uh, but the mud and devastation of Passchendaele would have been one of the worst for him. So kind of to wrap up my little section here on the last November push here, um, I found a review of a book called A New History, Passchendaele by Nick Lloyd. I couldn't find the actual book, but I found a review of it and this was in the review. <laughs> so this is a quote from the review. I don't think it's from the actual book. Um, here's the quote. A byword for slaughter is the most abject weather conditions, was not a model of generalship, although there were exceptions. Herbert Plumer commanding the Second Army is one, and the Canadian Arthur Curry another. It was a sort of insensate attrition, a trading of life for life, or several lives for a single German, military accountancy rather than strategy. Haig justified the losses and his limited success, he never got near the coast, in terms of attrition. Haig had planned a breakthrough battle. If he had wanted primarily to wear down the enemy, there were more economical ways. Haig was not the unimaginative commander described by many of his critics, but a gambler. In that sense, therefore, Haig was even more Napoleon than, ne than Neville. The question remains, however... Why did Lloyd George let him get away with it? Ooh. Ooh, scathing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know for sure Lloyd George was um, angry, for sure. Not yeah. happy. <laughs> Don't know. But he wasn't a military man. Lloyd George wasn't. So no. I think I read that that's why he felt like he couldn't comment too much on it because he didn't know. Well, yeah, you have to put some trust in your commanders, right? But I, I know he was heavily criticized by Lord George, or Lloyd George, uh, Winston Churchill. And I think he was even re like recalled like in later years to defend himself about his actions at, at Passchendaele. Yeah, makes sense. It was a it was a huge loss of life. For yeah, in in terms of casualties, I think the numbers, I saw lots of numbers. They seem to flip-flop between somewhere around 200,000 and 400,000. I on think both I sides. read 200 for each side. I thought. And then yeah. that would equal 400. So like each um like each of their own like estimates were a roughly a just over 200,000, but then there were other estimates floating around that it could be up to four. Oof. They don't, they don't actually know. Yeah. So I don't know if I agree with Haig and that, like the whole attrition thing, because he lost just as many men. <laughs> like, yeah. But I think it, um, I think the consensus was that the impact on the Germans was greater than it was on the British in terms of attrition. Possibly because the Germans were already, like, they call it a bloodletting, right? Like, they were already in a bad position. They were already bleeding. So to lose that many men, even if it's equal, 
it, it makes a bigger impact. Yes. So I think that's the end of our episode. Uh, our next episode will probably cover the Battle of Cambrai. But we also need to talk about the conscription crisis in Canada. Yes, that was a big debate. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, this will be released before Christmas. Um, so we wish everyone a Merry Christmas and we'll be back in the new year. And we hope you can join us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What About the Canadians. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts.